and welcome once again to Between Two Palms, a podcast about art, ideas, and making things. I'm Evelyn Lassery, co-owner of Two Palms in New York, where we're celebrating 25 years of collaboration with some of the world's top contemporary artists. In this episode of Between Two Palms, we'll be joined by Jordan Schnitzer and Judy Hecker, both of whom share a love of prints and printmaking. Jordan Schnitzer owns one of the world's largest private collections of contemporary prints. Born, raised, and residing in Portland, Oregon, Jordan is a real estate developer and philanthropist. But collecting and sharing prints from his vast collection has become his life's mission. The Jordan Schnitzer Family Foundation contains more than 13,000 prints and multiples, which are constantly on loan to institutions, schools, and university museums throughout the country. Judy Hecker serves as director of the International Print Center New York, a nonprofit exhibition space dedicated to the international printmaking community. Before joining IPCNY, she was a curator in the Department of Drawings and Prints at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. On behalf of Jordan, Judy, and from all of us at Two Palms, thanks for joining us. It's wonderful to be here with you, Jordan Schnitzer, on this lovely day, downtown New York at Two Palms, to have a conversation about your collecting, your mission, and what you do out west and also on the east coast when you come here, which is several times a year. I did a little bit of homework, Jordan, before coming here to speak with you, and I noticed that you now have 13,000 works amassed. Last time I checked, I think a few years ago, that was more around 7,000. Your collection has been referred to as an empire of prints, and I think it's probably one of, if not the largest, private holdings of contemporary post-war prints in the United States. But before we get into that, I want to go back in time a little bit at the risk of sounding a little Sigmund Freud to our listeners. But I think at the heart of what you're doing is education and access to art for kids and for students. And I wanted to go back to a time when you were a kid and a student, because I think some of that early experience with your mother, who was an art dealer, with your own first purchase of a work of art, was formative to what you're doing today and what you're doing for students and kids. Could you tell us a bit about those early exposures and experiences to art? I would like to because for all of us who are lucky enough to have a passion for the arts, someone was there, some initial experience, whether it was in grade school going to a museum, whether it was a parent, aunt, uncle, going to some friend's house, something happened where that art door was opened and In my case, uh, it's such a huge part of my life, and I try to help others have that same passion for art. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon, where I still live. I'm an only child, and when I went to first grade, my mother enrolled in the Portland Art Museum Art School, which is now called Pacific Northwest College of Art. At the time she was going, it was in the museum and part of the Portland Art Museum. It was since spun out and has about 650 students now. That was that opening door for me. 
suddenly my little workshop in the basement where I'd make these little wood aircraft carriers and all these little things young boys do with hammers and saws and nails uh, became a art studio. And there were easels and canvases and she'd bring home oil paint and pastels and charcoal and it just was a, a wonderful time. So how she came to open the art gallery was that the principal teachers in Portland, names that were important to us, Mike Rousseau, Louis Bunce, and others, complained that while the museum had a rental sales gallery, at that time in the early 1960s, there was no contemporary art gallery in Portland. So she, along with her mother, my grandmother, Helen Drector, opened the Fountain Gallery of Art, a small space about uh, 2,500 feet in the oldest building in Portland, the Newmarket Theater Building, which is 1889. For those of you on the East Coast, that's nothing, but for us on the West Coast, we're not as old, and it was a, a nice space. So she ran the gallery for 25 years, moved to several other locations, and I think she uh, was a role model for me and many, and that she helped us all understand the importance of not only supporting artists, but having art in our offices, our homes, being surrounded by art. And I was at the gallery for most of the openings, and uh, the artist would sort of fawn over me, and I'd see all the art and the artists, and I'd often go over on Saturday mornings and play with some of the kids of the artists, and their homes were different than ours. It was full of all the kinds of things you see an artist would have, baskets and skulls and bones and all sorts of things, and uh, it was a wonderfully enriching time for me. So. I've now become probably the largest private contemporary print collector in the country, which means nothing because if I didn't have this big public education program, it really would be sort of a, I think, a sick thing to say, boy, I've got all these thousands of prints and they sit in a warehouse. But think of what I'm doing more like a public library where we have a huge resource of works on paper and other mediums too, available for curators and directors of museums. Our program is all about art and the audience, and I view ourselves as really serving all those museums across the country. And tell us, I looked at the list of, the exhaustive list of regional museums, college and university art museums that you serve. They're not necessarily in the big cities where there are other large institutions with big collections and perhaps school programs that bring kids to these institutions. You go to places where that's not taken for granted, and you you change the way that kids see life by bringing them into museums and having, in many instances, their first experiences with art. And not only do you provide exhibitions, you often provide the bus, you provide the food. It's a, really a full service experience. So tell us about how you select the venues for your exhibitions and what the mechanism is there. Sure, love to. Uh, first, I don't differentiate audiences. We don't sit here and say, gee, uh, is it more important to have a show in New York? They're more sophisticated, more culture, versus Pendleton, Oregon, a town of 14,000 that is agrarian and uh, the principal business is grain and sheep. And for me, in fact, getting the amazing post-World War II artists, the Andy Warhols, the Lichtensteins, Rauschenberg, Jasper Johns, uh, Terry Winters, I mean, the 250 artists we have, it's actually even more exciting when I get the art to less serve communities. People in the major metropolitan areas across the country have a choice. They can go to the amazing museums we have. Not that there aren't millions of people in the greater metropolitan New York area that I think probably have not been to the Met, the Natural History Museum, the Modern Museum, and so forth. And we all have to work to make sure that every one of those people gets to those amazing institutions also. 
But when you get work to um, Boise and Salt Lake and San Jose and Tampa and Jacksonville and Nashville and Omaha and Oklahoma City and uh, Detroit, uh, obviously we've had big shows like the Ellsworth Kelly opening at LACMA with Michael Govan, the amazing director there. But the regional museums and university museums generally don't have choices of the kind of work we have. So it, it just brings even greater joy to be the facilitator, the middleman, between these amazing artists and the audience. Sometimes you have up to a dozen exhibitions, either on view, touring, or in the works, which is an astounding number. The collection can support it. For instance, you've got prints by Helen Frankenthaler circulating, Louise Bourgeois, Alison Saar, John Baldessari, Leonardo Drew, Polly Applebaum coming up. These are all from the collection. When I was at MoMA as a curator, I could work on one, maybe two exhibitions at a time if one was in development. How do you actually get these done? The first exhibition started at the University of Oregon that now is the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art on the campus that I graduated from. And David Robertson, the then director, had called up, and this was in the early 90s, and he had known that I was collecting some prints and multiples and asked if he could borrow some. I said, sure. Since having grown up with a mother who was a gallerist, I was there a million times when someone would say, gee, Arlene, I love this work by whomever, but I don't have any wall space. And she'd say, well, if something speaks to you, don't pass it up. Buy it. Store it under your bed. Rotate it with something else. And uh, therefore, I'd been buying art since I was 14. I bought the first piece on the night of June 23rd, 1965. It's in my dressing room. I've had it ever since. A study by Louis Bunce, one of our amazing artists in Portland. It's been with me ever since. By the time I started collecting prints and multiples, I'd blown through wall space before I was out of college. So when he asked if he could borrow work, I said, certainly. And he came to Portland, and I had a, a binder that I kept myself manually with an image of the work the edition number, what I paid, nothing like the 13,000 prints that we have a fancy art data software system that uh, thankfully Catherine Malone, the wonderful collection manager, and her team know how to use because I don't. But we still actually have binders. Now they're like 150 of them instead of just the one. But I remember going down to Eugene for that first exhibition that I'd been on that board and put on so many benefits and been to so many exhibitions there. It's hard to describe the joy I felt walking in and seeing the 56 works, two of which had been up in the house, the rest had been in storage, and it was so exciting. I remember the feeling was like walking into a room of friends, and yet I hadn't met any of those artists. But I think what that attests to is that when you're lucky enough, as we all should be, to have art around us, whether it's a $5 piece of something from a Saturday market or something with another zero or two after it, you develop a very special, intimate relationship with that art and therefore the artist. Walking in that room, I thought, this doesn't get any better. But then something transformational happened. People came in. Like anyone that has a hobby, whether you like to fly fish, croquet, bridge, uh, whatever the hobby may be, it's fun to share something you're passionate about with others. So when people came in, and they oohed and odd and smiled and frowned, all those things that people do when they go to an art exhibition. It just filled my heart with joy. But then, when people came in with kids, and I remember a man with about an eight-year-old boy, they were looking at a Robert Longo Men in the Cities series work that he did. And if you're familiar with the, those works, um, he was brilliant. He got his models in a room 
got a tennis ball machine, shot tennis balls at them. So as they duck and move and get in all these contorted positions, he took photographs and used those as the basis for this series of brilliant work that he did. The image that was up on exhibition, I think, was called Eric, and it's a man sort of with his arms up, and it looks to me like he's either dancing or he's stubbed his toe and twisting in pain. At least that's what I see. And I scooted down next to this young boy, and I said, hey, what do you think's going on there? Is that guy dancing, or is he sort of, you know, about to have a heart attack? And like any young person, you could hear the wheels turning, and he said, I think he's dancing, to which I said as you would say, and anyone who's listening to this podcast would say, you're right. And if there's a principle about my whole purpose with this collection, it's that moment. Because whatever that young person saw, and whether someone's three or 103, no one else can tell anyone else when they see a work of art and they interpret it in any magical way they do, that that's not the right answer. So the light went off at that moment, and I thought, you know, living in the Western United States, we have a very special relationship with nature and the outdoors. I mean, Portland's an hour and a half away from Mount Hood, from Beach, Central Oregon. But for many people, and that's just not limited to people in the West, going to museums, going to places where there's neat stuff, there's an attitude that that's for someone else, some elitist few, that you need some special key to get in that building. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll marry my passion for buying post-World War II American artists and the Northwest art that we still collect with a, a program to help get art to the audience. And it's interesting because you didn't set out to collect prints, but in fact, prints allows you to collect all stars in a way that isn't always possible with unique objects like painting and sculptures that are at a different price point, aren't as readily available, are snapped up so quickly at auction. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about your relationship with Prince, uh, the first Prince that you purchased, and uh, some of the relationships uh, I'll ask you about that you have uh, sure. with printers. It's interesting. Uh, it was only a few years ago, long after I'd started this Johnny Appleseed uh, walk to help get print to the public, that I remember back when my mother was uh, getting ready to open the Fountain Gallery of Art. And I remember going down, and the artists were there helping her put sheetrock up and paint the walls. And, and I remember looking over in the corner, and there was this funny sort of a cabinet. and had all these little drawers. And I looked at it, and I thought, I, mean, I was eight years old, nine years old, and I thought, that's funny. You couldn't put sweaters in there or clothes. wonder what it is. And I went over, and I pulled open this drawer, and it was a print drawer. And I'm looking down at this beautiful fuchsia-colored print and my mother came over like yesterday. She's 90 now. Uh, she was over my shoulder, and she looked down and said, do you like that? I said, I think it's beautiful. She said, well, you can have it. Little did I know it was by Stanley William Hayter, a very famous British artist, so I guess my taste was set right from the beginning. But interestingly enough, the first piece that I ever asked for was a print, a work on paper. So going back now to the 90s, my mother had closed the gallery, uh, I still felt committed to the fabulous artists of the Pacific Northwest, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco. But there was an exhibition of contemporary prints at the Portland Art Museum on whose board I served at that time. And as I went up through that exhibition, I thought, you know, I've generally bought everything from my mother's gallery. Obviously, I love the artist and the family discount 
and the payment plans. That first piece I bought in 1965 was $75, and I got a discount. It was $60, and I paid $5 a month. And as I've always suggested, if I missed a payment, she knew where to foreclose since my bedroom was right next to theirs. Why prints? I love all mediums. Oh, I'm often asked, what do you think about these big digital prints or about the Xerox prints that Hockney did or whatever? And I say, boy, whatever medium an artist wants to use to help convey their message to us, we're the beneficiaries. And as time goes on and holography and uh, methods of visual expression change with new technology, we're going to be the beneficiary of it. Uh, Just as over the eons, over millenniums, New techniques allowed artists uh, always from making paintings on the caves in France to the Egyptians to Chinese to whatever. So technology is a, a wonderful thing in the way that artists can use it. Now what prints? A couple things. First, I don't differentiate mediums. And the advantage of my buying works on paper is with my program being a public education one, they're more accessible and more affordable to buy a large amount of work. Not everyone is as lucky to have had an art history or art background. And I found, since I don't have an art history background, I was a literature major at University of Oregon, when you walk into a retrospective show in particular and you see years of an artist's work, I think it helps most of us get into the mind of that artist and see, oh, this is what they started with. And then they evolved to this phase and this phase and this phase. I think that's exactly right. One of the things that you can do with prints, you can go in depth on an artist's career or a particular movement, whereas with painting and sculpture, there may be some gaps or holes and you may have a wish list that you chase for a very long time. Really, through prints, you can tell the story of an artist's development over decades, over a whole lifetime, because it is more accessible. And I think that's part of what you're doing in the exhibitions and retrospectives that you're organizing, tell full stories. And I think something else about Prince and you, your relationship with art has has always been about relationships, in fact, first with your family and then encounters with the public interacting. And I think Prince also offers a way to have many relationships beyond just the conventional dealer-collector relationship, but prints are made by artists in collaboration with workshops. And you have outstanding relationships with many workshops like Gemini, Two Palms, ULAE, Pace, the list goes on and on. And a little birdie told me on your last excursion to the print fairs uh, in the fall where you come annually to do quite a bit of your shopping that you acquired works from some 17 different booths and publishers. And So tell us a little bit about those relationships that you've developed. You know, for most artists, it's a very singular activity. They're working in their studio and they're doing their paintings or sculpture, whatever. They may have some studio assistants. But one thing I think is so special about works on paper is that collaboration. You know, prints have been around during the 1500s and you know, Germany was doing those little woodblock and prints and they'd keep printing them until the woodblock wore out. But, you know, especially in post-World War II, really starting in this country, with June Wayne Tamarin, where she decided to help create a master printer program. And she did wonderful foundation, and those people that would graduate from her programs would go throughout the country. And you had an amazing thing begin to happen. You had Stanley Grinstein and Sid Felsen in LA with Ken Tyler initially open up Gemini, Catherine Brown in San Francisco opened up Crown Point Press, uh, Bill Goldstein and 
back here in New York with Titania Grossman. I mean, you had people around the country that all seemed to be just uh, percolating and opening up these publishing houses. Bob Feldman in New York, uh, who never had presses but was the publisher, amazing things he did. Dorothea Rockburn, I mean, just a, uh, Keith Mezitent, uh, Chuck Close's first monumental work. So for me, part of the joy is the fact that the artists were able to work with master printers who had the time and ambition to push the technological envelope. Hearing James Reed talk about the nine months it took at Gemini working with Richard Serra to try a hundred different kinds of paints, automotive paints, house paints, whatever, to get the particular combination of paint that ended up being these paint sticks to create that amazing work that Richard Serra does. To hear Ken Tyler and Frank Stella when we were at the Addison Museum, I'd been with both Frank Stella a lot. We did his catalog raisonne in a national tour of his works. I'd been with Ken Tyler a lot, but I'd never been with Ken Tyler and Frank Stella. To walk behind them and be a little bird and hear them talk about the works. Hey, Ken, uh, what happened here? Do you remember? And gee, Frank, this we had you know six people working for four months trying to make this work, and it kept falling apart and whatever. Amazing that partnership. We had a uh, Richard Serra show at the Nasher in a museum in uh, Dallas. Richard Serra wasn't able to come, but Javier Fumat, the master printer at Gemini who does all his work for the last 18 years. One of those glorious art moments for me was walking into that exhibition with Javier who'd spent 18 years on that. Suddenly he, get a, he gets a call from Richard Serra and I can only hear my side of the conversation. Well, yes, Richard, this is over here. Oh, this is hung beautifully, whatever to walk in with the printer, okay? Because for me, I put the printers on a pedestal. They seem to be forgotten by most folks, but they're that other working arm. You've got the artist being the right hand, the printer is the left hand, and together, they create things that never have been produced before. We're at Two Palms right now, and if you look at with Mel Bachner, who I did the book and uh, the show of his work and love everything, my gosh, the way that David and Evie worked to come up technologically with the automotive press because they needed that kind of 2,000 tons of pressure instead of the normal sort of printing wheel to create the magnificent works that Mel Bachner is doing today. That just gives me uh, goosebumps. So I, I would say I'm also on a mission because I think there are too many museum directors and curators that think of prints and multiples as some second-class citizen to paintings and sculpture. And it aggravates the heck out of me. Every artist I've met, and I, I don't go out of my way to meet a lot of artists, I've been lucky to meet a number of them, they care about their works on paper just as much as any other medium. I think they like the collaboration because they get out of working alone. I mean, it's a more social activity. And I think they also, it keeps them on their edge because uh, printmaking is an art and a discipline. And I think it helps them as we've heard from many, it's helped them become better painters, and being better painters helps them become better printmakers. So it's a love-fest relationship in terms of the artists and their works on paper. The other thing I would say about prints and works on paper is, well, I've bought lots of, I buy a lot of paintings and sculpture of Northwest contemporary artists, and I bought a few more things than maybe I should sometimes of the other national artists that I love, because I try to be disciplined to keep the allocation to building up this teaching collection. There's a competitiveness I perceive in the contemporary art world, 
And the prices have gone, in my opinion, berserk. That doesn't mean there isn't value for those people who just, you know, it's rumored that Steve Cohn is a brilliant collector, just paid 91 million for that Jeff Koons, and if that has value to him and, and he's passionate about it, I'm happy for him. There's, I think, a more sane world in the print world. It appears to me the galleries are more uh, congenial with each other, the publishing houses. It's like everyone tends to support each other more than I perceive in the doggy dog gallery world, especially where there's some people who, through our wonderful free enterprise system, have amassed a lot of money, and there's such a huge competition among the billionaires on some of the key, especially pop art work, and I'm feel so blessed to be in the world of uh, works on paper. Well, I think you're a you're a kinder, gentler collector, and the print world is a kinder, gentler, more accessible group of people. And I think we we saw that last night at IPCNY's Spring Benefit Dinner, which happens annually, and there is a sense of family, an extended family, and healthy competition among all the publishers who sometimes collaborate together, and certainly artists work at multiple workshops. And that's exciting to see the different kinds of work and sensibilities that come out. And so I do think it is a different, a bit of a different animal. Tell us for our listeners who may not make it out to your facility, and I understand you have a new facility out in Portland, what it's like to go and view your collection there. How is it stored? What's on display? And tell us a little bit about the university museums that you're involved with. Well, first of all, um, the art that is real to me is the art that I live with, like anybody else. It's the art I wake up to every day, and we have a wonderful relationship, the art and artists and me. Well, I have to ask, what's the first artwork you see in your home when you wake up in the morning? Actually, in the house I'm in right now, I have a Frank Stella up on one wall. I have a Demon Corn uh, from the Ocean Park series on another Walking down the hallway, there's a Richard Serra and an Ellsworth Kelly. Uh, another Frank Stella. Downstairs, there's an Andy Moses painting. Ed Moses' son, he's in L.A., wonderful artist. There's a uh, Ryan McGinnis. There's a small Sam Francis. There's a uh, John Buck sculpture, wood sculpture. There's a Jim Dine, a three-piece work. Uh, a local artist, a Jay Backstrand, a big painting. There's some glass art, uh, Chihuly and... Uh, other pieces. You know, we've had 130 exhibitions at 80 or 90 museums. This year we have 15 openings. Last year we had 11. Uh, at each of these openings, the vast, vast majority, if not all of the art that's exhibited, I've probably never seen before. I mean, I bought it from an auction in a catalog, or maybe I saw it at a gallery, but then it goes in the warehouse and I never see it. So <laughs> no one gets as excited like a little kid as I do going to these openings and I'm seeing the work and, and two things happen. Every time I go to these openings, we usually get to the city first and go there to look at it before the opening that night. And I'll walk in the museum and the museum director, chairman of the board or something will join say hello, and I'll sort of scoot ahead of them. And every time I walk in these exhibitions, I burst in tears every time. Now, there's no sense of ownership, none. I don't know where I would go in my heart and soul to have some sense of ownership. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what I would feel, none, none. What it is, is that I think for each of us, we're all artists in our own way. The amazing things you've done at Tamoma when you were a curator, now at IPCNY, what you're doing with that organization, 
in our lives, as parents, as working, whatever. We all have gifts, no matter what station in life you're in. Now, it just so happens in terms of the visual art world that at the top of the top, the cream of the art world, which the artists I collect, they were people that genetically had a predisposition to being creative, okay? It was a luck of the draw genetically. Second of all, they had something happen that caused them to want to go on that path. Third, they happened to be at the right place at the right time. I'm sure there are many artists as amazing as the artists I have in my collection that I don't have that didn't somehow get the right gallery or the right move or whatever. But when I walk in these exhibitions, uh, these are geniuses. And the inspiration I get from their inspiration makes me feel more inspired to go back and do the things that I do in a better way. It makes me so appreciative of being alive and how lucky we all are as human beings and the gifts we all have. I love going to see the work. And tell us about some of the newer artists, up-and-coming artists, or artists that you may have overlooked. You've mentioned Kelly and Stella and Johns, and these are the great artists that have gone down in, in the books already. But as you know, the books are being revised now. The art world and the world at large is going through a kind of transformation in terms of who's representative and inclusiveness. So tell us about some of the new artists, the new people that you're looking at. Well, as you suggest, the collection is of post-World War II American artists. Uh, Why? Because these artists are artists of my time and your time. I've often said that artists, in my opinion, are chroniclers of our time. And that is true whether we go back 1,000 years, 3,000 years, 5,000 years. Any artist that's alive and doing work is a contemporary artist. So often I've been at shows and exhibitions and someone will come up and say, ugh, this abstract art, this contemporary art, whether it's Ellsworth Kelly or Frank Steller or whoever, why can't they do these nice little beach scenes and mountain scenes and flowers? And I'll say, well, first of all, they all can. And they all did when they were in school. We can go back and look at Ellsworth Kelly doing, we did flowers his whole life, but whatever. I said, but you know, a couple things about artists. Anyone can be an artist. We all took art in grade school. We all doodled on a napkin or at a restaurant or whatever. But I said to move up to whatever museum I'm at at the time and have the director, curator pick their work, a couple things have to happen. First, you've got to have a burning ambition inside you okay, that you're willing to rip open your guts and put your work on the wall, sculpture, whatever medium it is, and be ready to withstand all that criticism and all that public analysis of your work. Second, okay, you've got to do something in a different way. So an artist has to do something in a different way, and that's plenty tough. Now, again, any of us can be artists, but move on up to be in these major museums, they've got to do something different. Okay? And third, there is that luck of being at the right place at the right time. Ellsworth Kelly talks about the fact that uh, Frank Stella, that he had money for two months' rent, and he figured he'd go back to work uh, being a house painter or something. And by God, he did some art. He was living in a dumpy little place and down in lower Manhattan. And uh, by God, he was picked up in a show at the Modern Museum. And my gosh, as we say, the rest is history. So those big post-World War II artists, they looked up at the abstract expressionists that came before them. They couldn't do that kind of work. They had to do something different. Uh, we had the post-World War II America, GIs coming home, TV, consumerism. 
That's what they were into, Lichtenstein, all those folks. Now, today, we have amazing artists that are mid-career or rising. I mean, Nicole Eisenman, she was the Jordan Schnitzer uh, talk at the print fair two years ago. I'd not been too familiar with her. She was fascinating when she talked about her life, her experiences, her art. And I was delighted to buy three of her works last night. Very powerful, wonderful storytelling. Oh, there are so many. I mean, there are a number of established artists that are in that top, maybe 50 artists of the world that haven't moved up in that top 10 that I think there certainly should be. Especially um, a lot of artists of color today that are blessing us with the powerful, agonizing, intense work. Of course, Kara Walker, we have all of her prints in multiples. She's sort of top of the heap. But Lorna Simpson, Ellen Gallagher, Micheline Thomas. Uh, and uh, Alison Saar, who you Alison have. Alison Saar, we have a show of her recently. work. Wow. Okay, those pieces of hers. Uh, we have a show at the University of North Texas in Denton, Dallas. And I think that the artists of color and the ethnic artists that are emerging reflects our time. When for too long, a lot of those cultural and ethnic groups were um, disenfranchised from mainstream culture and life in America. And as those individuals come full circle to be involved in every aspect of business, politics, education, everything, the art is helping push those doors open, as artists always do. And you're not only organizing exhibitions of their works, but you're inviting them to come speak. I know that you have a lecture series that you fund, and Wangeshi Mutu was a guest speaker. Alison Saar has spoken. So tell us about some of the public programs and the artists, how the artists engage with the public on the occasion of your exhibitions. Well, we're fortunate. As my mother uh, went to art school, my father had already established our real estate business that I grew up in. I started working when I was 14. I was a janitor, then I was a painter. Then I started working in the office when I was 17. I've always known and wanted to go into our real estate business, and I've run it for decades and been fortunate to have had a lot of success growing the business, which I have as much passion for as I do the art. And it's the success of the business that's allowed me to be philanthropic. So when we have these exhibitions, and you asked earlier, do we go to people, people come to us, generally uh, the word gets out and a museum will, uh, now a lot of people have heard of us, they come to us. We don't ever create the shows. As I said, we serve the museums. So they'll come to us and have an idea, or they'll ask us what we've been collecting a lot of. They usually come to Portland and spend a day or two going through those 150 volumes and ideas will come to them whether it's a group show about some theme or whether it's an individual artist with a retrospective show. And then what we'll do is when they decide on what they want, uh, we'll say, well, tell us about your outreach programs. Now, we're fortunate that we don't charge for the exhibition. We ship it to them for free. We do brochures that have to be given out for free. They often want to charge a buck for them. I say, no, no, even though I know probably 70% of those two, three-page brochures will go in the garbage. The 30% that maybe end up being on that young person or that young at heart makes a difference. And then we'll talk about outreach. How does this happen? I was at a lunch club in Portland, and I saw Brian Ferricio, the director of the Portland Art Museum, and we are fortunate to be the largest supporters of the Portland Art Museum. And he said, let me introduce you to my lunch mate. His name is Toby Jurevics. I said, Toby, what do you do? He said, well, I'm the contemporary curator at the Jocelyn Art Museum in Omaha. 
Well, frankly, other than Warren Buffett, I hadn't thought much about Omaha. <laughs> I didn't think about whether they had a museum or not. And I said, tell me about your museum. And he did. So he came over and he looked through our books and he said, is this really true? We can borrow whatever we want? Yes. And it's free? Yes. And you'll ship it to us? Yes. And you'll do brochures? Yes. And you'll let us talk about outreach money? Yes. He says, I think my director, Jack Becker, is going to want to talk to you. Next thing I know, I got a call from Jack Becker. He then came out two weeks later and he spent two days and he picked out 120 works, a group show, and he titled it Under Pressure. Brilliant name for a print show because they're all made with French paint. I said, you know, Jack, I've never been to Omaha. I don't know museums in the Midwest. As long as we're shipping it to you, could you talk to some of your fellow museum directors? And he put together five different cities and uh, I'd had shows in one or two of them. So Missoula was one of them. I'd had two shows in Bozeman, but never in Missoula. About two years later, as the show traveled around, Laura Millen, the wonderful director of the Missoula Contemporary Museum, came to Portland, where her daughter lives, and we met, and I said, tell me about your outreach programs. And she said, we have a fabulous outreach program. We bring in all of the fifth graders from the public and parochial schools. I said, how many is that? She said, 1,200. I said, that's great. But what do you do about the first, second, third, and fourth, and the sixth, seventh, and eighth graders? She says, well, we don't have enough money. I said, you go back, you talk to your educators, and you figure out how many docent slots you can fill, and we'll pay for all the buses or whatever it takes. Then I said, anyone else around you? We've had a lot of success bringing seniors in with dementia, high school kids that are mentally challenged, uh, in addition to all the, you know, I mean, well, who's normal today, but in particular those, those groups that may have more significant issues. She said, there's some Indian reservations. I said, wow, we work a lot with a number of the coastal tribes. And I said, do they have schools? She said, yes. Long and short is we brought in 300 kids from the Salish and Kootenai reservation. And what's interesting about Jack Becker, when he picked Jasper Johnson, Ellsworth Kelly, and Donald Judd, and Frankenthaler, and Red Grooms, and Chuck Close, and on, on, on. He'd also picked two Pacific Northwest Native Americans, Rick Bartow, passed away since, fabulous artist, and Joe Federson, love his work, both of them. And so I said to Laura, do you know those artists? She said, well, we had a Rick Bartow show some years ago. I said, look, if we're bringing 300 kids in from the Salish and Kootenai tribe, and they're seeing Andy Warhol, Donald Judd, all those people for the first time, Ellen Gallagher, Kara Walker, I'll send you over some more Rick Bartow and Joe Federson work. So we filled a lot more of the museum with their work too. So when those Native American kids came in, they got to see not only the best of the best, they saw some of their own right up there. So that brings me great joy. We don't track what happens. I'm not sure how you would do that. But in my heart, I know that just as I was lucky enough with my mother to open up that art door, just maybe that visit to that museum inspired those kids whether to become artists or to maybe have hopes and dreams that they could be whatever they want to be. Well, I think that's a wonderful way to leave this terrific conversation that we've had with our listeners about accessibility, about experience, about art as a reflection of our lives, as an escape, as lets us think about humanity and not just the market and buying and all of that. So I want to thank you for being with us and sharing uh, 
sharing your experiences from an early age to today. It's been uh, wonderful to hear about that journey, and we look forward to seeing what comes next from the Jordan Schnitzer Foundation. Thank you so much. Between Two Palms is recorded at Two Palms in New York City. Music performed by Arthur Lipner. Be sure to like and subscribe to Between Two Palms to hear more from artists, curators, and collectors. You can follow us on Instagram at Two Palms New York and check us out online at twopalms.us. On behalf of Jordan and Judy, thanks for listening. Until next time.